Hello, welcome to this month's episode of Jews in the Big Screen, your movies review and discussion podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Tracy. And I am Corman Hill. And today on the program, we are here to talk about uh, two 2022 films, that is R and All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh, Corwin Heller, where would you like to start? Uh, modern day uh, Germany or World War One Germany? Uh, let's, let's start in current day Berlin. All right. So that means we're starting with Har, uh, which came out this year. It was written and directed by Todd Field, uh, which is interesting because this is his first movie in 16 years. What? Which is wild. Um, His last movie before this was Little Children, um, which came out in 2006. Um, Todd Field's a really good director. Um, he has been nominated for three Oscars. Uh, In the Bedroom is one of my favorite movies of the early 2000s. It's like wild. Um, so to see him out of the game so long and then come in with this movie is kind of awesome. Uh, but you think he's been working on it for 16 years? The, the degree to which this film was researched, I would not be surprised, but I also doubt it. I just don't know what he's been up to. But anyway, he's coming out with a banger, so love it. The film stars Kate Blanchett, Noemi Merlot, and Nina Haas. Uh, the film had a budget of, if I can find it, uh, $35 million and a cumulative worldwide gross of $5.4 million. Uh However, this is still a recent release, and I'm willing to bet because that figure is the same as the U.S. release figure that it does not include the international box office. So whatever. We'll see. Um, The film's tagline. Never mind. It doesn't have one. All right. <laughs> you know what? Hell yeah. For the best. Less, and less films should have taglines. Yes, fewer need to have them. Um, We are talking about this in part because it's a recent release that I wanted to see, but also in part because it is expected to get Oscars buzz, and we are in that part of the year. It is currently a Golden Globe nominee, as those nominations have come out very recently. It is nominated at the Globes for Best Motion Picture Drama, Best Performance by an Actress in a Motion Picture Drama for Kate Blanchett, and Best Screenplay Motion Picture for Todd Field. Um, the film itself is about, um, it is set in the international world of Western classical music. The film centers on Lydia Tarr, widely considered one of the greatest living composer-conductors and first-ever female musical director of a German orchestra. Uh, this was my film, so I will go ahead and get us started. I love this. I loved this movie. I was enwrapped in it from the word go. It is such an interesting perspective. I was talking about this to the other day to a friend, and I described it as the most perfect film or the most perfect representation of a narcissist I've ever seen. Um, As someone who grew up with a narcissist, this is exactly, that kind of behavior it is so uh, prescient because of the time right we're, we're seeing a lot more of this mm-hmm. scrutiny of 
people in power and how they abuse it. But also specifically looking at it within the cultural world, I thought was incredibly impactful. And and someone who has not just a prominent position within this specific medium, but also literally a position of of power uh, in terms of how the um dynamic is between conductor and 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 uh uh ensemble or orchestra and uh, i mean it's incredible in its dissection of what this type of person what this complete narcissist and horrible horrible human being um you know how it manifests itself throughout different behaviors and the ultimate self-destruction there within i thought was incredible and I'm so looking to also get into some of the other representations of it that I thought were masterfully done. The fact that there is no underscore in this movie is genius. It's a movie about music. And unless someone is playing music, it is silent. Amazing choice. But we'll get I'll, we'll get into it more. Uh, Corwin, tell me your impression. I don't think I picked up on that. The lack of the underscore. I was very tuned in to the like almost like minute noises, like the very soft, yeah, the vibrating, the, yeah, the car. things yeah. like that. But I don't think I ever noticed that there was never any sort of like you say, and we keep saying undertones. It that's. I'm shocked. I did not notice that whatsoever. I was, but it makes so much sense. I have a theory. You want to know my theory on it? Go ahead. My my theory on it, and I promise I will let you give your 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 thing too. But I was very excited. No, about it's this. better. My, it's a better show when you talk. It's not true. I love you. <laughs> my theory <laughs> on it is that it's like tied into the idea that Lydia is incapable of making a composition. Right throughout the film, we see her at a piano in a studio apartment that has is a point of contention between her and her wife, and she is like desperately trying to write a piece of music and just can't. Right, and I think part you know, that coupled with the lack of underscore is meant to represent this is a woman incapable of creation. She can't make her own music. She can only boss others around the music that is in her life is exclusively made performed by and written by other people wow love it yeah she 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 lacks that capability see now i'm stuck thinking about it I yeah, we'll come back I, to it. Give me your give me your thoughts. I thought she grew immensely as we went forward. And I think it wasn't until like the second third of the film where it was really more of a I missed out on some details early on to kind of set up those first step stones that kind of lead into the full picture. And then once it was all there, it was, uh, oh, this is someone who has kind of wheeled and dealed themselves through life 
always seemingly coming out on top in all of these different little individual interactions. And once that first domino falls, once that first domino falls, the house of cards comes down, which is two very different, but I guess it works for an idiom. And it, she has so few redeemable qualities that I was excited to see what pieces were going to fall next as we really got to through the climax. She was a very enjoyable character to dislike. And it's because she was very complete. Uh, and go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I fully agree. And I think one of the things that makes it such a so effective in that way is that it's also not obvious when the film starts that she is going to be a bad person. You know, when we first meet her, she is uh, giving a talk at like a uh, was like a New York Times, a New Yorker event. And and she's, you know, speaking very with, you know, like very languid, poetic speech that that seems so you know, heavily intellectual and, and so incredibly forethought, you know, it, it's, obviously we can recognize it as literally scripted because this is a movie and that's how that works. But uh, such to the point that in, in the onstage off the cuff performance of this, you know, masterful composer, she, she seems more lucid than anybody on the planet. And, you know, even, and you take that and you go, oh, okay, I entered into a world where Lydia Tarr is a person and she is one of the smartest, most intelligent uh, artists working today. And then you get into like her Juilliard class where she's very confrontational, but still speaking with that you know, very erudite, uh, uh, you know, pattern to her, you know, it, her, her, mm -hmm. her language has grown didactic but but has not lost any of its poeticism right but it she's gained that confrontational kind of of, of uh, push to her and then throughout the film you kind of get those pushes and pulls you get that kind of like oh she's so smart and she's so good at what she does oh but she is self-centered and an asshole until you reach that point i think like you said you know like kind of in that middle act we're like oh no 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 she is unequivocally the villain of this movie <laughs> And that's the thing. That's the thing I loved about it, which is that to compare this to a film like Bombshell, which came out in 2019, which is about Fox News uh, and, you know, the sexual harassment suits with uh, was it Greta Van Susteren, I think, where no idea. they are cartoon villains in that movie. And, and look, that is that is a good movie. That's not me trying to slander the movie. Bombshell is, is I think it was Oscar nominated for several things. Um. Yeah, the, Jonathan Lithgow was Roger Ailes. Uh, Kate McKinnon was in it. Mm -hmm. uh, it whoa, it won an Oscar for something. It's I'm willing to bet it's makeup. Let me look. Boom, makeup and hairstyling. <laughs> uh, I've said it once. I'll say it a thousand times. If you are a makeup department making an actor look like a real person, you will win that Oscar every single time. So, yes, it was an easy call. Also, Charlize Theron. It's not only for actress in a leading role, Margot Robbie in a supporting role. But anyway, as compared to that, where they 
we Roger Ailes is a real person. All, all these people are real people. And it, it the subject matter and the personas lend themselves to a more cartoonish portrayal of evil. Um, it is still, at the end of the day, a cartoonish portrayal of evil, especially with the heavy makeup that Rod, that uh, Jonathan Lithgow is wearing. In this, she's not that. It's not a, you know, like a Mac the Knife-esque representation of a, a, a some goonish thuggery. You know, she is a complete thug in the movie, but you you your entrance into that is discovery, right? It's not a, a immediate presentation. Do you, do you remember the opening monologue by the presenter? Um, I remember him saying you know, greatest living composer, uh, listing all of her accolades. I don't really remember much of the specifics. So I, I went back and re-listened to, or I didn't go back and re-listen. I kept thinking back to what he was saying and that opening screenshot or like that opening shot where they're describing her as like this living legend worked with all these great people, you know, but was also the kind of person that would never look at reviews and would never, or things like that, where they even show Francesca rehearsing or like, like saying over the speaker, knowing it word for word. And all of that was a complete fabrication about her personally because that's what she wanted to present to others that like she read every review they show her doing that she is just hiding behind this persona for the entire film and then is once she you know like we see actually happen once she gets punched in the fucking face in this case by a step it all just is destroyed it's also interesting because you know you, you see her in that beginning moments like off on the the wing of the stage waiting to be introduced and she looks kind of nervous or at least you know she she she's doesn't she like get um some pill or something like that from her uh, assistant uh, yeah um, like her wife's heart medication yeah something she, she is which I don't her wife, I don't get just, I don't get it either but let's ignore question. it for the time being. <laughs> it literally is. Um, it also it it softens her appearance when you first meet her. You go, oh, okay. So this is this is like a kind of a little bit of like a reclusive genius or or you know mm -hmm. some kind of introverted uh, like you know out, out of the the folk. It doesn't like the attention. And then you find uh, no, not 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 the case at all. This is this is a performance. This this is this is the act of someone who is trying to uh, conceal her her true horrible identity, which is that I am a monster person. Uh so let's let's move into what is like just the second scene. <laughs> um, the argument that she gets into with the student at Juilliard, because mm -hmm. I this is I think you know this is the first really like point of conflict in the movie that it was going to come back up later on and kind of inform who Lydia is. And what it also does well is it 
while it portrays her as being a an argumentative figure with a very headstrong point of view and some questionable takes on modern convention she is still well spoken enough that it doesn't necessarily feel mean mm-hmm. but it basically she gets into an argument with a student about the identity politics of playing certain classical pieces right yes it's like separating person from performance or in this case like art so w- when when you watched that scene what was your impression of i guess her argument uh it was that you can have art independent of what someone's actions outside of the creation of that art regardless you know of what it was that they did and did you start to question tar at all at that point you know i don't i don't know if i did I feel like that is like right along that line, just like teetering back and forth between like, no, I don't agree with a universal rule, you know, like that she was kind of implying like the, the like succumbing to like social media, like, like a wokeness argument, but to some extent you can't base that opinion solely on who that person is so i was kind of like caught in between both ends of what she was saying yeah i i agree which is again why i think it's so effective because it is i think she is partially right and partially wrong which is what makes that which is what keeps it from being a a a, again a cartoonish portrayal of a bad person um by sprinkling in some things that because this is this is also a, a current debate i think everyone has when they're consuming older media you know if if you're going to watch movies made before like i don't know six years ago uh chances are it's gonna be made by some very unsavory people and if you're going to listen to music from you know pre-1992 it's going to be have been made by some very unsavory people a lot of our great painters are incredibly bad dudes and bad women uh, and that same thing goes for this conversation. Frankly, in this most people were. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, Salvador Dali is an incredible painter and was a Nazi sympathizer. Henry Ford was a, a, a an American uh, ingenuity or an American uh, entrepreneur genius, and was a, a Nazi actually, um, support of the party. Like, like it, history and the the people who advance it in arts and sciences are full of monsters. And it is a constant negotiation that I think has come down to an individual level of where are your boundaries? And to that end, there's not, I think, a black and white answer, which is why Lydia's perspective in this argument, I think, can be accepted to a certain extent. Her forcefulness makes it challenging, which is what I think when this comes back up later in the film uh, is what... I started to rethink about, you know, it wasn't so much Mm. the argument as it was the presentation of it and how combative it was. You know, she really, she like, she made someone cry in class. That's wrong. 
you know um but I, I i do get what she means like if you're going to be a conductor you probably have to be very well acquainted with uh the classics like I, I i did understand it from that perspective and that early into the film you're willing to I, at least i was willing to give her a lot more leeway because she has been established as this extremely renowned person um and and you know it was shown to be a much softer personality than we had seen just before the scene i got some serious whiplash vibes throughout Oh yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I, I don't want to, I guess, move it through it too much scene by scene because there's, I mean, it's a long movie. It's, it's two yes. and a half hours long. Uh, I could have kept going for me. I was having the time of my life, but it is long, so we, we can't move through it too slow. Um, I guess let's talk about the main. I don't know if it's the A plot or the B plot. Uh, it, it becomes the a plot, I guess, which is that uh, Lydia has a assistant. She also has a previous assistant that is coming up in the early goings of the film that says it keeps sending emails to the current assistant and to Lydia. And we don't know what the content of those emails are, just that they're becoming desperate. And it turns out that this previous assistant, Krista, commits suicide, which Again, we're not clued in on to why until later on in the film. Later on in the film, we find out that Lydia was trying to essentially groom Krista uh, into a sexual relationship. And when Krista rebuffed some of her advances, Lydia blacklisted her, reached out to uh, heads of symphonies and orchestras all over the world Um and said, don't work with Krista. She's uh, like mentally unstable. She's hard to work with. You know, a lot of the, the the things that we've heard from people who were blacklisted by the likes of Harvey Weinstein are the, is the type of language we saw in the email correspondences from Lydia Tarr. And due to the desperation of her situation and the fact that Lydia wasn't allowing, uh, wasn't letting up this incessant blacklisting, that is what led to Krista killing herself, which ultimately resulted in a lawsuit against Lydia. Um, so, I mean, I know I just covered a lot of ground there, but as that kind of little drips and drops of information came out, you know, how do you think it was handled by the film? Initially, I felt like I had missed something when they basically were having conversations about her. I, I honestly thought I had missed some preemptive just insight onto at least how they were, you know, what the relationship started as, like what what they what relates them in you know, this context. Um but once you really start to unravel it, like I again, same little analogy, once that first card falls the rest start coming down quicker and quicker all at once. Um, and I, I liked all of the little things that kind of out of context don't seem like anything like the, the scream she hears in the park or, you know, a different case, the, the metronome just ticking constantly and the piano just ticking, ticking, ticking. 
And then once you get the context of what it's related to, and in this case, you know, with her former assistant, it all kind of builds into this character piece. I love how they built that up. It's so incredibly well, because by, because also by, by the time you get to the, her denying it, you know, like, oh, she's, mm-hmm. she's crazy. Did you, you know, make sure you delete all your emails from her, blah, blah, blah. By the time you get to that, you're fully against her. So then by the time that the um, the Juilliard class comes back up, but it comes up in a heavily edited version that is meant to make Lydia look even worse than the conversation actually was, you're also still on the side of like the edited video. <laughs> like knowing full well that that video is edited and is misleading, she is such a bad person and you're so aware of it up to that point that it almost feels excusable you know Uh, I want to watch this again and just kind of look for all of these little pieces that build up the bigger picture so she's such a great character Oh, Kate Blanchett kills this role too. Now, look, there's so much this movie. I'm going to about I'm about to skip a ton of it, but we've spent a little bit talking about it. We have another movie to talk about, and I really want to talk about the ending. So, sure. I'm going to skip ahead to that real quick, if that's okay. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so basically, what ends up happening is. Lydia's life falls to pieces. Her wife leaves her and takes their daughter, um, who has also been a through line throughout the film. It is, you know, she's Lydia is seen as very defensive of her daughter. One of the only people scratch that the only person in this film, Lydia actually seems genuinely selfless with Um, regardless, her wife leaves her, takes the daughter. The allegations are getting, are starting to ramp up. Lydia's growing even more erratic. She starts, um, she starts a, a fight with one of um, her fellow conductors who had, we had seen her previously be very friendly with earlier in the film and essentially flees. She flees back to Staten Island where she's from and goes through her childhood things and has a weird visit with her brother. That was the only scene I, really didn't care for in this movie because uh, he dropped a very like cheesy ass Aaron Sorkin esque line of you don't seem to know where the hell you came from or where you're going. I'm like, fuck you. Um, I but- 100% pictured that of he has been saying that line in his head in this argument for seemingly 25 years. He knew what he had in the chamber first thing coming out of his mouth when she comes back or if they ever see each other again. That was an internal monologue for years. I I did enjoy how wildly disconcerted he was with her entire appearance. Like she is in his house. They haven't seen each other in seemingly years. And he's like, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Perfect. Spot on. Um, Anyway, the film ultimately ends with Lydia going to Southeast Asia where, you know, she, there had been some reference to her um, having spent time with audio work in uh, remote places or, or in like uh, Asia. And I think it's some jungle work. I don't really remember. Um, anyway, 
she goes on tours Vietnam shit yeah she 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 you know gets taken out on tours of the area essentially becomes like a rediscovering kind of little montage um you know gets a massage blah 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 goes to a whorehouse um and then the film ends with her conducting a new orchestra for a video game series at a what looks like a like comic-con type thing and it's an interesting ending because <sighs> it seems to suggest some type of rediscovery of self and and a, a journey into what made you fall in love with this field in the first place but to get it from the villain is very interesting uh so i'm curious as to hear your thoughts on that so i didn't take it as any sort of redemptive comeback it was almost as if she saw those old films after going home and it was like oh this is what this is what inspired me to follow music this is what made me love this art form this is what i gave up i can't like i built it so that i can't do anything else because she mentions earlier where in that first little interview that you know we're in a society of like specialization and anyone who does anything else is just like viewed as wasting time and she doesn't do anything else with her life her relationships are built around music her career built around music the only friends and colleagues and anything is around composing and conducting music and she threw it all away to be some i don't know piece of shit and since she can't do anything else she just goes to the only place that'll take her which is like one of those game of thrones orchestra we're gonna watch the show we're gonna watch these scenes while a live orchestra plays and it's just like that's what's left some bangkok anime sci-fi fantasy show orchestra just doing that and she's just left and i don't want to say the gutter because by all means it's still quite a lot nicer of a situation than any of us are in but from where she was this world-renowned peak of her craft type person she just fucked it all up yeah i i agree what i still find so interesting about it though is that the way it's framed when when you get to the ending you know with like that montage and with the the very like you know the lush backdrop of southeast asia is it it still feels watching it though mm. it feels it has this air about it of redemption well i think i came away with it came away with i should say in watching it was that she is unchanged mm-hmm. that like like you know she she's rediscovering music but that it almost feels like this is the cycle and we yeah. caught it in the middle at the start of the film where she's on her high. She's already done all the climbing she needs to do. She's at the top and we're going to witness the way down. And that this is now, you know, a fresh start, but we saw where she went and we know what type of person this is and she will not change. Right. And we know that because she went right back to conducting. 
You know, like the fact that she goes back to conducting maybe isn't a good thing. That's the world that yeah. led her down, you know, the the rabbit hole of power and sexual abuse that that she decided to undertake. And here she is in a whole different she could reinvent herself in Southeast Asia as anything. And what is she doing? Conducting. Conducting and going to weird massage parlors. Well, seemingly to get fucking jerked off, you know? Yeah, I don't really know what uh, what that was implying. I And that's why I feel like part of it is if this was a uh, a happy, happier movie or if this, she was a protagonist, that it would be about her, you know, trying new things and, and looking for new avenues to understand who she is because you know maybe not regular degular massages um because i think those are a little bit more standard but you know like you've seen that i've seen that in montages of people trying out like acupuncture you know or like bikram yoga you know, shit, shit like that so i can understand it from a perspective of like unlocking some part of yourself to let go uh but i i think I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Hmm. Definitely needs a rewatch. Oh, it's so good. Um, let's go into uh, I guess final ratings and reviews of this since we have a second sure. film to talk about. Uh, this sure. is my movie, so I'll get us started. Uh, it's incredible. This is. You know what this movie felt like to me? It felt like a movie that would have come out a, like a prestige film of like the 90s that don't really get made like this anymore where they oh. are, you know, on the long side. They're about niche subjects and they're made for adults. You know what I mean? Like th there was a genre of film that existed like in the, the 80s and 90s of movies that were just made for adults. They weren't like overly artsy or they weren't action films. They, they were just the movies that your parents watched, <laughs> you know, hmm. um, and it felt like that in the best kind of way because it's not. There are obviously, you know, plenty of high-minded concepts in here, and it's a very artsy world that this film takes place in. But I also don't think it it it's so um, exclusionary or difficult to, you know, work your way into like uh, you know foreign films can be for some people because there's accessibility issues or there's people who just don't like subtitles for whatever reason, and and it's not overly existential there's not a lot of crazy imagery happening in it that's tough to to understand it's perfectly well understandable it, it is right there for for you to grasp um you know it, it's not trying to conceal anything it's just also not at the same time overly showy and i loved that it was so nice to see um i think this is a fucking five out of five for me maybe it's a lot of recency bias but i thoroughly enjoy this movie and I'm very much looking to see how it fares at the Oscars I can't really disagree with anything you said I can't really bring out anything to detract from it I can't give you any reason why I wouldn't give this a five 
other than just that like gut, gut feeling, feeling x factor yeah i don't know why i i think if i watched it again and appreciated it to the fullest extent knowing what it was building my final reaction after that watch would be different but the gut feeling is just a four and a half that's a-okay i'm also very curious just to put a pin in this before we uh put a bow on this before we move on to the next one i'm also curious to see if this holds onto its golden globes track and gets nominated for best picture and best lead actress because one of the trends of the oscars that uh i'm sure we must have talked about is it feels like none of the best actress films are ever best picture nominees so or at least very few of them especially ones without uh correspondingly strong male performances the ratio is very off supremely off so i'm very hopeful that this bucks that i mean there's very few male characters that are prominently featured in this film the majority of this film is 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 women and so i i i'm I'm looking forward to how it does all right uh to that end let's move over to uh, world war one germany and talk about the most recent installation of all quiet on the western front the film was released uh just a a handful of weeks ago on Netflix. Uh, the film was directed by Edward Berger. It was written by Edward Berger and Leslie Patterson, sorry, and Ian Stokel. Um, it is, of course, based upon the um, the book by Eric Maria Remark. I don't know that I'm saying that name right. Sorry. The film stars Felix Kamerer, Abrecht Schuch, and Aaron Hilmer. Hoping I'm getting any of these names right. That'd be a huge win. Uh, so this is a Netflix movie, which means we have no budget and no box office. Um, that's just how they work. That's the way the news goes. Um, the film did not have a tagline as well. Over two on taglines. That is A-OK. Um, is Are we nominated for any awards? Actually, I didn't look ahead of time. Uh, it is nominated for, yes, Best Motion Picture Non-English Language at the Golden Globes. Um, this is Germany's official selection to the Oscars as well for the best foreign film category, foreign language film category. Um, so we're expecting to see it in that uh, award nominations list as well. The film is about a young German soldier's terrifying experiences and distress on the Western Front during World War One. Corwin Heller, this was your pick. You get us started. I pretty much was locked into this film since I saw the initial uh, promotional stuff on Netflix because of the subject matter. I was locked in on on seeing this. Um, and knowing the story a little bit, I kind of built up some expectations going in. And what seems like the for the first time in a while, it lived up to the expectations I built. And I was very, very surprised how much I enjoyed it. Um, I thought it gave a uh, a incredibly relatable and um, how do I want to phrase this? Um, just utterly destitute uh view into what world war one was like and i was i was i don't know if i'm 
enamored by the story itself and the character narrative throughout, but really just the overall themes and like what all quiet on the Western front did more than the actual scene to scene change in the characters or, or the narrative, wherever it goes. I, I don't know, man. I, I have, I've been sitting on this knowing I would have to talk about it for like two weeks and I keep thinking about it every handful of days and just, I don't know how to word it. I don't know what to say, but it's a movie I saw two weeks ago and still jump back to every now and again, just like, wow, holy shit, that scene, stuff like that. I... All right. I liked this movie. <laughs> I did not love this movie. This is fine, as I think how I'm going to put it. And the reason I say that is I don't know what it wants to say. I understand the idea of war is hell. We have 90,000 movies that say that. It's not a good talking point because it's been done. In fact, it's been done with this book. Twice. This is the third time. The other two movies have won Oscars as well. It's been done. And so the thing that makes this movie different from the other iterations of this intellectual property specifically. Have you, have you seen them? Uh, I seen the, the original, the 1930s version. I actually did not know there was 1970s version until very recently. Um, but I've seen the 1930s version. It's incredible. Cool. It's an amazing movie. Um, watch it. It's so good. Well, actually, sure. Then thinking about it, there's three things that makes this different. One of the three adaptations. This is the first film that's actually a German production, unlike the other two. The other two are American productions. Uh, the second thing, obviously, is the gore. There's, this movie is very gory, whereas the other ones just are not. Uh, 1930s cinema is not, not doing that for you. No, and, and even if they were willing to show gore to this extent in the 1930s, the effects wouldn't be there to make it look good. Um, although I will argue that there's large segments of this film that also don't look great because of the CGI use. Um, but regardless, um, there's that. The third thing, and this is the thing I really didn't understand, and in fact, quite, quite disliked about the movie, was the inclusion of the um, of Daniel Brühl's character, uh, the Erzerberg character, essentially the, the negotiations in the train car. I don't know uh, why the only thing I could surmise for why those scenes were included, which is not a part of the book, the book and the previous adaptations of the film are solely concerned with the, the young men who are, you know, headed off to world to, to war, Paul Brammer and you know, the other ones. Um, the filmmakers included 
the 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 Sturzerberg character. Um, I'm going to get that name wrong every single time I have to say it. Erzerberg, Erzerberg character, and and his compatriots. One would assume, as to show that, as like an apology on the German side of things to say, hey, not all of us wanted to be in this war. We recognize that we didn't want to keep killing all these people. I'm not sure how that's supposed to land because you guys did this war. Like your countrymen got involved. You can, you can claim it's like it wants credit for stopping what it started. And I'm sorry, you don't get a lot of credit for that because the only reason you guys did stop was you got your shit pushed in and recognition of how bad your selfish losses are from your own troops is not a gold star behavior. And I found it incredibly, incredibly in poor taste that they would include such a, such a, a, um, uh, a, a concept especially with their framing of the French as being wrong for wanting an unconditional surrender, which the French were not wrong for, and the framing of the French um, farmers as being wrong because he paints them as villainous, especially that kid who gets painted as such an asshole for wanting to get back the Germans who were stealing food during a, a occupation i mean wildly wildly distasteful filmmaking i see i didn't take that at all i thought the only person who was truly painted in a bad light was the german general i think everyone else falls under the umbrella of like the this is the worst fucking situation anyone has ever like this is so much worse than any one of us could ever dreamt it could be this is awful. We just want out. Everyone, everyone got fucked by just some other cog in the machine. And it's just utter, they got destitution on all fronts, except for the generals who just are pushing the war. Those are the only people I thought were shown in the light of criminal assholes. Like they are the villains. Yeah, but I don't remember what I, the, I the German general's think, name was, but yeah. I, uh, you could pick any fucking German name you want. It would make sense. General um, Friedrichs. Sure. Well, him and the dudes in the car who were hesitant to sign it and didn't want to end the war, all that. Regardless, it doesn't matter. Um, shit. Oh, the whole showing of the Treaty of Versailles discussion or the the train car discussion was just to show the futility of those last two battles just I know there's a lot of there have been discussions about you know actions at the end of the war and like how many tens of thousands of men died within like a day or two of that treaty being agreed to and just adding some context to that. Cause otherwise I don't know why you would include it. I thought it was included as part of the book, which is why it was. And I didn't question it. No, you see, that's what makes it 
so because it also completely for me it detracts from the horrors of war what what makes the end of the book and and the end of the movie so impactful is that you don't realize where you are in the process so to discover that paul Brammer's Mm. death is at the end of it's right before the ceasefire is what hits you over the head with he went through this odyssey of pain for nothing. For nothing. Oh, I see. And the, and the painting of Urza, the reason I say that, that they did the French really dirty here is that th- they get the opportunity to paint Urzaberg as this wonderful man who was put in an impossible situation by these mean French guys, but he gets to be the virtuous one who understands the consequences of continuing this war until it reaches a point at which they would be forced to accept anyway the point he makes to one of his compatriots in the train car of it's a matter of whether we surrender today or you know the americans are sending two hundred fifty thousand troops a uh, a week or whatever you know we'll be yeah. we'll be surrendering in six months anyway just with more laws with more dead civilians or more dead soldiers and by giving him the opportunity to look like the good guy inherently the french look like assholes for putting him in that position when he he, by way of the German government, put yeah. himself in that situation. Yeah, it, they, it's an unfair, unfair portrayal. They they were the ones to invade France. It's kind of hard to ignore. I uh, this started like a week long uh, dive into the depths of Wikipedia for like <laughs> all of these battles. I will say, things I liked about this movie. I really enjoyed how it started. I really liked the idea of the um the recycled clothing mm-hmm. i i yeah, thought that was pretty. very impactful for for how you know in such contrast to the kids having this you know glory filled perspective on the righteousness of their actions <laughs> immediately juxtaposed against the complete replaceability of uh the germans view of them Right. As you know, willfully disposable, right. Easily. Um, and completely dishonest in how they're going to be treated because, you know, they're ripping the names out of the clothing while handing it to people, just saying that, you know, they forgot to take the names. It didn't fit the old guy, whatever. I, I thoroughly enjoyed that part of it. Uh, I do wish we got a little bit more of the, the schoolyard days part of it. I think the movie suffers a little bit. In how the 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 young men relate to each other, uh, it it does a much better job with with Braumer and um, like Cat and Tiaden yeah. and and those guys. But the the core four kids that enlist together, I think the movie really gave short shrift to those relationships. Yeah, I think like honestly, five minutes of them just kind of going through that first experience together like you don't have to you know add another act you don't have to you know spend too much time just like i let let me learn their first names before they get to the war (laughs) right yeah when when glasses kid died i was like whoa Whoa, Uh, saw that coming honestly yeah i no, i just i just meant it in in a way it's like already (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like now i i mean yeah. don't get me wrong i i knew this kid dies i've read this book i've seen this movie but like 
so suddenly okay yeah. he's had two speaking scenes it's like uh, i knew you know by the subject matter that um, most of these if not all of them are going to die but like ah uh, man the kid with the glasses like 30 seconds into it that's just mm, it's a little too cliche <laughs> and it's also tough because it's like, oh, did you guys like him? Because he seemed really annoying in the two scenes he had. Uh, he's the one that tried to not get you to go to war. Oh, darn. Your dad's going to be so mad at you. Uh, probably shouldn't have faked that signature. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so, you know, the, the film covers uh, a lot of it's it's funny. The film covers a lot of ground at the same time as it also does not cover a lot of ground. Which is funny because that's kind of how World War One went. Um, I'm I'm sure Corwin can speak more to this than I can, which as he can for any war subject. But part of what made World War One such a fraught endeavor was that literally not a lot of ground was changing hands between, um, especially on the Western Front between Germany and France. I think they were fighting over the same. What was it like 200 feet or something like that? Like it was like um, a very insignificant amount of, of territory within like the first month of the war. I don't think the front line for like several hundred miles from like Belgium to f the center south of France uh, moved more than like 50 meters. Yeah. Yeah. I remember it being like that. So that's what, and that's what I mean when I say that, you know, to, in, in, accordance with how the war went this film also does not cover a lot of literal ground um you know they revisit the same uh what do you call it uh, french farm a couple of times and you know whatnot uh i i guess I'm trying to think of the best way to tackle this one. what did you think of the combat scenes um i well artillery seemed about as scary as one would again as from everything i've seen artillery is meant to be like the scariest shit when you're just in that air like that situation i've never been there for that so i'm assuming that's about as fearful as it gets i, I can't fucking know i'm sorry um the one thing that i was really happy like scared the shit out of me watching were the tanks i couldn't imagine just being given what is essentially a musket and just like yeah a, there's like six dragons that are just gonna come charge at you good luck with that and just like yeah i i can't do anything the the fruit fruitlessness yeah of what that must have felt like i thought it did a good job in that almost final culminating battle uh or i guess the second to last one um i honestly don't remember the first like three quarters of the film as far as like combat goes i guess maybe the there's like one big wave at the beginning where pretty much everyone dies i thought it was really fitting like these are the kind of battles where you have two hundred thousand people charging another line of what is essentially hell on earth and all of you are dying just millions of people just charging towards absolute death and just entire 
towns and villages worth of men just being wiped off the face of the earth in minutes. Yeah, I mean, this is the, correct me if I'm wrong, again, you would know better, but this is, this is uh, I believe, the, the first real example of modern warfare. You know, yes. prior to this, all of our conflicts have been handled. I mean, you think about how battle was conducted in the Civil War, which is only 50 years before this, in World War One. You're still at that point in time lining up, <laughs> facing the opposition, pointing and shooting and hoping that your fucking blunderbuss is accurate enough. Not literally a blunderbuss, but you know, because that's more of a shotgun. But for, uh, for all intents and purposes, yes, your 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 unrifleized um uh, musket or spiralized. What do they call it? Rifled. Yeah, Rifled. inside is it's rifling. Yeah. yeah, I was right the first time. Um, and so you know. Which also paints to some extent the excitement for these kids coming into war. This is really the first example of an understanding of the horrors of war. World War mm -hmm. II, while especially horrific for its own variety of reasons, including the extremely more heavily leading upon use of chemical warfare um, and the even more advanced weaponry that came about in the interim between these two right. periods, uh, World War One really no one knew. Of of the civilians signing up who weren't already previously engaged, no one no one knew what they were signing up for. So to get that entree into the environment was certainly fitting. Yeah, I think the action scenes lived up to what they needed to be. If you're going to have a horrors of war movie that doesn't really offer the same emotional availability of as as the non combat scenes, those combat scenes need to be flawless. And I think these combat scenes are amazing. I, I I think they're exactly what you could possibly ask for. They are long, which I think is actually a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, they certainly take their time, which is to the benefit of the film. Um, and I in, I give a lot of credit to uh, Felix Kammerer, who plays the lead character Paul, and his ability to stay as stone-faced, through it all as, as possible or to get increasingly i should say uh stoned in the face as, as he goes forward you know becoming more and more jaded to the i mean by the time we get to the last battle he's basically not even blinking yeah he has accepted his fate whether he technically knows it or not i guess it doesn't you, really matter you can practically hear him when the general says we're going to work and you can practically see him going oh, come on really today Gonna go to bed I, again? I fully ex I fully was expecting him to just like oh okay and then just like rifle in hand all right boom bang you're dead let's all go home doing this shit again um like it's a Monday morning and you have to go to work so how did you just to lump them all together kind of how did you feel about the non-combat scenes uh, that still took place within um, or, or centered around our main character, Paul? I guess, oh man, I don't know how to surmise them all. Um, you can I guess break in general, it specifics it's like, if, if it's easier for you. Like the, the relationship building you have with him and his comrades to an extent, like, okay, like it seems perfectly adequate it does a decent enough job showing the kind of bond and understanding and like the guy talking about his like kid who died and like his wife and all that like it was fine nothing stands out good or bad i i, I do not have an opinion 
Yeah, I, I think this is where the movie lost me a little bit. I, I didn't really feel too much of the connection I, I wanted to with the the characters. And I'm I'm I I've been going back and forth as to whether or not that was the point. Because to a certain extent, they're constantly dying and everyone's telling Paul, you have to just move on. Like there's one scene where one of his uh, comrades is like yelling at him about one of the the deaths of one of their other comrades. Like he's dead. That nothing to do about that shit now. Move Mm -hmm. the fuck on. So part of me was like, oh, am I not supposed to care that much about these characters? Because I don't like I really don't like it. It's a war is hell movie. I know they're all going to die. (laughs) <laughs> like I and their brief emotional connection scenes seem to just be like, here's why you should care about me. I have a kid that died. I have a wife at home. I'm illiterate. You should go to college. And it's like, okay, got it. <laughs> um, I don't think anything was overly bad about it. Like nothing stands out as being um campy or forced or overly like melodramatic i just they they didn't quite land for me and it was especially in such sharp contrast against how well executed the battle scenes were that it felt a little bit lackluster oh i had a question yeah i don't know about you but when i started this movie on netflix it defaulted me to the english version did it do that for you no i had the german version i didn't know there was a english sub until i went to uh uh, pause it. Yeah, I it. started off on the English sub, and I was like, "Huh, it's this is some 1930s ass filmmaking." Where instead of casting German actors, they just hired a bunch of English people, and were like, "Fuck it, Americans will look at that accent and say it doesn't matter," because <laughs> that was back in the day where all foreign actors were just English. Um, and then I paused the movie like 20 minutes in because someone was talking with his mouth full and was speaking completely clearly and I was like okay yeah 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 no this hat because that's the there was the trouble with you know English being a Germanic language is like every now and then I thought is this dubbed and then someone's words would match up to the English and I'd be like no 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 that that matched up perfectly it can't be but it's because it was a small enough phrase and close enough to the English equivalent that it did line up it was just still the wrong language so anyway, just wanted how, to ask that. So how far into it did you get? Dude, like 20 minutes. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, way farther than I should have. Especially because they had, um, what's his fucking name? Uh, Dan- Daniel Bruhl in the film, who like I've seen in a bunch of English language films. Like I know he speaks German, I, I but I've. He was in Inglorious Bastards. He was in Rush. He was in Captain America. Like, I've seen him play enough English-speaking roles. I was like, huh. Okay. I guess he's speaking English in this movie. I I guess he learned English too well. I don't know. Yeah, there was a... Yeah, so anyway. Anyway. Um... I, I, you know, it, uh, anyway, I guess we'll just get, skip ahead to the end of the of the film. Uh, the armistice gets set to take place at eleven o'clock in the morning on November eleventh. Uh, the 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 big bad general that Corey and I had referenced earlier, whose name I already forget, Fredericks, General Fredericks, wants to 
end the war with a German victory. And so they get set to go attack the um, unsuspecting French trenches at 1045, 15 minutes before the war is set to end. And, you know, they they make mention of it because the soldiers are like, oh, geez, how much time do we have? And before the armistice is supposed to take place, 15 minutes, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, they storm the French lines. The French get prepared in a hurry. Battle ensues. And our our lead man, Paul, ends up being killed in the battle. Uh, gets run through from behind by a bayonet. Um, Like moments before the armistice formally takes place at 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, a recruit that Paul had saved earlier comes along, takes uh, a scarf that Paul had taken from one of his fallen comrades, um, and you know moves moves forward, and then the film ends. What did you make of this ending? Uh, I didn't honestly expect Paul to die. Um, I don't know why I thought a book from the fucking 1920s 20s. would fall to modern movie tropes. Um, my bad. Uh, I thought he was going to make it through to the end and go home or we would see this like crushing relief that he finally made it through the war and it's all over and blah 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 uh it hurt when that frenchman just kind of popped out of the shadows and ran him through just like uh we were so close we were there we were at the finish line oh just it was devastating when it was truly unexpected um and that just kind of fits the whole point of what this entire story is about and has been for a hundred years of just like, yo, this shit just shouldn't have happened. This sucks. Let's never do that again. This is such a waste. Yeah. I found it to be kind of an odd ending because it, again, it feels like there's a, a, a hidden apology in there or, or a softening of, of, of Germany's role in the war in that ending. Cause all right, the book does not include this character that Paul had saved, taking this scar from around his neck and moving. Sure. The book ends with Paul losing his will to live. He's like despondent. All of his friends are dead. He is in a, deep depression he and one of the things that has gotten to him is that he believes that what they're doing world war germany's part in world war one will be looked upon as like their their entire generation will be misunderstood right because hmm. they thought they were signing up for this glorious thing and it, it it turned into what it was the horrors of war you know where they were mass killing people you know it it was bad and germany was on the wrong side of it and it feels like by including that moment in the movie where the young recruit gets saved by paul and gets this little scarf on it it feels like the film is trying to say that my interpretation of it was you know this symbolic gesture that 
Paul had in some way sacrificed or that the, the troops who had died had sacrificed for some of the sins of Germany and out of it was was something to be salvaged. There was some some redemptiveness to this transfer mm. to a, a younger generation because it was also a very young soldier that had been the one that Paul had saved that is taking up this scarf and it you know, meant to symbolize some you know tarnished purity that is still remaining within uh the ranks of this generation and and, and of this nation which look, I'm not to say that that I'm not trying to say that that Germany should have been eradicated from the map and it was an irredeemable thing that had accomplished but to include it in what is literally a war film that Germany was very much so on the wrong side of it's just such a strange thing to do. I I don't get it. And no matter what it does symbolize, if I'm in turn, if, if I'm interpreting that incorrectly, and it's it's meant to have some kind of different connotation, or you know, these soldiers have fallen so that other soldiers hadn't, or or something to that effect. I I I get it. But no matter what the redemptiveness is of that moment, I because it is it is not a part of the book, especially, which means that there, there is an additional sentiment that is trying to be conveyed by the filmmakers, irrespective of the source material, is wild. Because no matter what, it is meant to be reflective positively upon the German government and military in World War One, a war where they were the bad guys. In what is one of the very few examples in modern warfare of Black and white, right and wrong. Germany was wrong. I don't understand that choice. It's very perplexing to me. Yeah, I mean, from what you said, I I would very much prefer the original. Oh, the original ending is like uh, sounds fantastic. Yeah. Oh, but it's it, and it you're, is. It's also about you know. Go ahead, sorry. You're giving up with nothing with no redeemable outcome at the at because of that choice there's nothing to live for and there's nothing to die for so between the two you're just choosing to die like you're just giving up that hope with that's this, actually exactly just, it yeah there's oh you're giving yourself so that someone else who still has that childlike you know innocence can make something of their life or they can go on like they could be complete and it's just like that's that is the hollywood movie trope that you fell for and and it, it the extension of that is that there is a valiance to this sacrifice by the soldiers which the book's point mm -hmm. is no there's not yeah none of this meant anything to anyone the the book makes the point that that you actually you, you nailed perfectly, which is that, uh, and it's been so long. I really want to reread the book. Actually, um, Paul is basically like fucking kill me. Yeah, like war has broken him as a man. Like he doesn't believe in the future of his generation. He doesn't believe in the future of himself. He doesn't believe in this cause. He doesn't believe in the future of of of, of, of Germany anymore. Like he and and. Everyone around him has he's only seen death for over uh, like a year at that point, and he is ready for it because at least it means that some part of this will end. Like he's lost the hope that there will be mm -hmm. end via armistice and is 
almost looking for the release of death for an end to to to, to the war for at least himself selfishly just truly have, having lost like the will to go on and which meant is meant to beat the drum of war is hell it broke this man's will to live one of the few things we think of as maintaining up until our last dying breath and like even though i physically survived mentally i'm i'm long dead there's nothing left like i there's nothing to redeem here Hmm. now all those complaints Hmm. being said again i do think the filmmaking of this uh, the film is shot beautifully the action scenes are coordinated i mean magnificently um it is and it's very well acted i thought all the performances in the film were strong i i really i in terms of how the film was executed outside of those like writing quibbles I'll, I'll i'll take exception to i i think this was a really well done film the problem i i mostly have with it is especially under the shadow of the predecessor which gets the benefit of being like an early hollywood movie you know and any really good movie from that era gets put up on an extra pedestal to deserve it or not because of the era um i i'm not sure of the staying power of this one but i uh I fully expect it to also get its nomination at the Oscars for um, best foreign language film. Yeah, uh, I'm with you on that. I I very much enjoy. Oh, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. I was just gonna say. I guess we should move into final ratings and reviews. We're here. Four. Yeah. Um. I'm trying to. I'm trying to decide because the the other thing is it this is also a long one this has got to be the longest two episode two films we've done in one episode mm-hmm. um like there's five hours of movie here that we've discussed that's between just two movies that has to be the most that we've talked about um and i think i'll give it a three like i i do think this is if if you are an Oscars completionist and you're going to watch this for the Oscars, or if you are into war movies and you want to watch it as a war movie, I don't think you're going to leave saying, woof, that was bad. Like it's, it's cause it, again, it is not, it is a perfectly good movie. Um, yeah, I just, I, I probably won't revisit it, I guess, but you, you I don't think anyone's going to be like, Oh fuck. God damn it. And I don't think you're going to have like that. No one would have that reaction to it. Um, all right, so that's that's this week's films. We are going to continue our awardsy trend by starting to pick films off of the Golden Globe nominees list until the Oscar nominations come out in about a month or two. Uh, so to that end, Corwin Heller, what do you got for the next episode? Uh, I think I we agreed I'd pick Elvis. I don't remember. Corn <laughs> and I uh, hot potatoed who was going to pick Elvis because we wanted to get it out of the way and watch it now, but neither of us really wanted to watch it. So, all right. Yeah. Basically, actually, really at this point, we're at the point of the year where we're not picking movies for us. We're picking movies to get through award season. So let's just say instead of they're our choices, we are watching for the next episode, Elvis and everything everywhere all at once. Uh, you yeah, can find God. Elvis... Sorry, go ahead. God forbid anyone thinks I want to watch Elvis. 
Oh, I know. Who wants to watch? I oh, God, I, I, uh, fuck me. I don't want to watch. Like we have to. And even if it wasn't for the show, I still would because I am at least like a big five completionist. But fuck, I don't want to. <laughs> um, so Elvis is currently streaming on HBO Max. Um, Everything Everywhere All at Once is currently streaming on Showtime. You can check both of those movies out there for the next episode. These two films should combine for a pretty big handful of awards so we should have plenty to talk about between the two of them when we get a chance to get into them but that will be for the next episode um, until then you guys can follow the show on twitter at big screen juice you can follow corwin on twitter at corwin heller you can follow myself on twitter at joshua d tracy if you'd like to send emails to the show you can do so at juicing the big screen at gmail.com and until next time we all have a good one Bye. Bye.